Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the middle of January 2022. We are wrapping up a week of warmer, wetter conditions after a cool, dry start to the year, continuing from a colder than normal December. It is nice to see the snow and ice get melted off a bit, making it a little easier to travel around town, although those first few days with the rain were quite treacherous in places. I don't know how it's been in elsewhere in southeast Alaska. I think the snow persisted a little longer and, and there was more of it. So when the rains did come, it resulted in some pretty heavy snow loads in places. But fortunately, we didn't have to deal with that so much here in Sitka. It is the beginning of the year, so I've been out trying to uh, see the birds that have been around uh, this winter, maybe the ones lingering from last year, kind of a new year, new birds sort of idea. And it's been nice to see the wintering species here, including a black scoter that's been hanging out with some surf scoters under the bridge here in Sitka. Also, Northern Shrike is still around and got to see a great horned owl on the first day of the year, which was a fun one as part of the Christmas bird count. If you're getting out in the new year, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded and originally aired back in late March of 2020, just at the beginning of the pandemic. I spoke with Josh Lane, a naturalist and tracker, author of the book Conscious Nature, the Art and Neuroscience of Meditation in Nature. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with him describing how he got started. I actually grew up in the suburbs, and as a youth, I didn't have a ton of nature experience, though I always longed for it. Um, I did get to go out camping a bit and uh, work in the garden and things like that, but I always knew there was something more to find outside in the wilderness. Uh, As a teenager, I got into yoga and uh, developed a meditation practice. And I found that was amazing for me for emotional regulation and just supporting well-being. Um, But I would kind of longingly look outside, like towards the edge of the trail and always wonder how to identify the trees there, the footprints of the animals and how to survive in the wild. And I longed on some level to have that same level of connection that I felt inside of myself through my mindfulness practice and to somehow bring that same level of connection to my environment around me. Um, And that led me to tracking and learning wilderness survival skills. Um, And after many years of also mentoring people in those skills, connecting with the landscape through our senses, um, I started to get curious about, you know, how does that interplay with mindfulness? And I saw a lot of threads where they weave together through my own experience, but I was also curious what happens in the brain, what's going on in our uh, neural substrate and in our physiology and our body as a whole. Uh, we hear a lot about the benefits of being outside, the benefits of meditation, but I wanted to dive into that research and understand that more thoroughly uh, for myself and for my clients uh, to look at some best practices. So all that kind of wove together and eventually formed the book. Nice. Yeah. And to be clear uh, for folks, you uh, grew up in the Northeast United States. And is it Connecticut? Am I remembering correctly? That's right. Yep. I grew up in Southern Connecticut. In uh, Southern Connecticut. So, so a very different um, part of the world in many respects uh, from what we're used to here in Southeast Alaska. Uh, I, I don't, I have not been there myself, but uh, it sounds like you did have some natural areas around, but I imagine it was, it's been 
developed for a very long time in many places. Uh, and so a lot of, a lot of development and, and maybe not so much of, of what we might think of as wilderness, typically speaking. Um, but still felt that longing to the, to the natural areas that you were, that you were uh, seeing, even from, from your suburban area. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I grew up hearing stories about what my town was like back a hundred years ago. Um, my great grandfather was an oysterman, uh, as were his brothers and they built their own boat by hand. And I actually got to see that boat growing up, but I heard a lot of stories from my grandma about what the land was like and, you know, just gathering foods, wild foods uh, from that area, which is very different today. So I would always think back, you know, what did this place look like back then? What was the experience like? And today there's a lot of suburbs, you know, in that area. Um, but as I was beginning my tracking journey, I would seek out those pockets of wilderness that I could find there. Um, sometimes five acre parks, um, trailheads that were perhaps ignored by other people and, and where the wildlife were still roaming. Um, so I would seek these places and, immersed myself there and really discovered a whole world of nature that's going on right at the edge of the suburbs. Yeah. Nice. And I know that for a lot of people, we, when we hear the word tracking, we think, Oh, there's tracks on the ground and we're following those tracks. But um, knowing, knowing the work that you do, I understand that tracking is, is uh, broader than, than maybe that simple simplistic conception of it might be. And would you mind sort of sharing the kind of the broader context of what, what tracking is actually meaning to you? Yeah, you know, on the highest level, I think of tracking as observing those patterns of change. Nature's always changing, yet there may be some principles that hold true through that change, um, whether it's the movement of the clouds and the weather patterns or the rain coming down and eroding a track bit by bit and aging that track. You know, there's principles at play. There's gravity. There's the the light and warmth coming down from the sun that dries that track on the ground and degrades it as the soil falls apart. Um, there's uh, patterns at play. And so for me, a uh, track isn't just a footprint in a mud puddle. Um, it could also be the call of a bird uh, going through the air and the alarm that's propagating through that signal at that moment that's a track of something that's an indication of change that perhaps a predator has come through that area uh, either in the on the wing or a predator on the ground and that bird is seeing that and emitting that alarm signal so uh, to me everything's fair game for tracking um, both out in the woods and anywhere else uh, everything's changing everything is in movement um, so it's endlessly fascinating yeah, and I, I even from what you were describing there, the interactions between things, the weather and, and tracks in the sand, for example, uh, I know that there's concepts of lax and larders and, and kind of reading the landscape and, and understanding how that's going to influence the actions or, or the, um, the sort of typical actions and behaviors of, of animals within that landscape, uh, depending on other events, whether that might be wind or season or temperature. Uh, things like that, all of these relationships really it, it seems like part of part of what you 're getting at there is the uh, it 's the tracking of the relationships the interrelatedness if you will so so it 's not only the things that are changing but also what are the relationships between these different things that are are present uh, together uh, or or present across time 
uh, and and what are the signs of those relationships? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I mean, it really is a study of interconnection on many different levels. Um, and I, I love that uh, kind of idea of six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. I don't know if you've ever played that yeah. game, right? <laughs> you know, but the idea that everything's interconnected and just within a few a few levels of that interconnection, somehow you can connect to somebody else you don't know, like Kevin Bacon, the actor. Somebody you know knows somebody who's connected to that within six degrees. Um, and so it is fun to track if you're, you know, along the deer trail and you're trailing the deer. Um, like you said, lacks and larders, the larders are those things that there's an abundance of resource in that moment for whatever reason, because of the season. Um, you know, there could be for the deer uh, in the springtime, it could be the new uh, tender leaves that are emerging that are filled with protein. Um, and maybe it's a buck and it needs to grow its antlers. So it's seeking that protein source or it's a doe um, who's preparing to give birth and, and gestating and needing that resource to grow the um the fawn you know so uh you see that direct connection between the deer and that larder of resources in this case the the leaf tips that are emerging in the spring um but at the same time uh you know you could have other animals that are dependent on a deer and because the deer in those zones feeding on certain plants those predators will be drawn to those areas to seek the deer so it kind of, uh, it ripples out further and further and it gets more interesting. The more ripples out, you can track something, uh, becomes more and more mysterious in a way. Yeah. It's, you know, living where I do here, we have, uh, a few sandy beaches in the general area. Um, all of which are beaches. Uh, if you go there, uh, you can, you can find some tracks in the sand, which of course are really nice. We have, uh, to, to look at, you know, in terms of detail and so forth. We have snow occasionally here. Uh, it's despite being Alaska, it's not always that snowy. Uh, and it, being out on an island, we have a sort of limited suite of tracks or animals, I should say, mammals in particular, which um, makes it easier for identification purposes. If we're talking about the who of tracking, <laughs> that, that's uh, you know understanding what's what's here in the first place uh, really narrows your your options down. But it is it can be a little frustrating because so much of our area is forested and you know there might be a spot of mud here or there uh you know bare and it's organic soil so where you see a deer track or bear track in the mud but to actually follow a trail uh, can be very difficult the moss doesn't I, I think exceptionally good trackers could probably still do it but getting to the point where you can um can be uh, an exercise in frustration so I've, I've really appreciated the approach of well no it's really about um how animals are, you know, if we're focused on animals, it's how animals are related on the landscape. The actual tracks and, and following those tracks of an individual animal is just one aspect. And maybe that's not the aspect that you'll want to focus on if you live in a place like I do, unless you get a chance to go over to the beach and, and really kind of follow that and learn its gates and that kind of a thing. But these other, these other sort of landscape level things as you were describing, like what is it that's attracting the deer this time of year? And it isn't about you know, the particular trails that lead them there, but it's about anticipating where they might go and maybe setting up a trail cam, for example, and, and saying, all right, I, I guess there's ways that you can kind of test your knowledge uh, using that. And, and so I'd be curious what, what some of the sort of um, modern tools and techniques that you, you bring to bear in, in your tracking. And I know you mentor others in tracking as well. Uh, how, do you, how do you bring those things in and, and um, you know, we aren't necessarily hunting for food as we were in the old days. Some of us still do, certainly. 
Um, but many times we're just out there for the enjoyment, really. Yeah, in a way, I think about it as hunting for connection today, you know, when it's not looking for food and not a direct survival kind of thing. It's like that next level up or a few levels up in uh, what maybe Maslow's hierarchy. Um, you know, we've met our survival needs, but we're, you know, now searching for that meaning, you know, on a deeper level, that feeling of connection with our place, with ourselves. Um, and tracking is a rich way to get into that and explore those interconnections. Um, and animals go places for a reason. Um, you know, so like you're saying, you know, if you can't find the clear prints or those tracks that are easy to follow because you don't have a lot of sand or snow at the time in that place, um, you can certainly uh, learn more about how to predict where they're likely to be at certain times uh, because of those food resources, because of where they need to go for shelter or cover at certain seasons or where they're going to get water, um, where they're going to feel safe to give birth to their young. Uh, so these things are just journeys we can go on getting to know a species really deeply in our place. How does that animal relate to that place? Where does it meet its needs at different times of the year? Um, and that's a really fun thing to do that really never ends, I find, is just continuing to learn about one species more and more, going deeper and deeper, uh, seeing how that animal responds to different environments. Where does it like to to bed down and find shelter? Where does it like to eat at different times of year? Um, you know, like a deer, for instance, at any given time throughout the year, uh, here where I am in the Northeast, the white-tailed deer will have five to 10 different favorite uh, foods to nibble on. So it's interesting to track that. So just to speak first to that, you know, question kind of, of you know, what is tracking open us up to? Um, and then getting into how do we do that would be the next one. Um, Getting into that, the technology piece, I love that we have satellite maps so easily available now through Google and other resources. Um, and this is always the first thing I have uh, folks that I'm mentoring and tracking do is to really study their local landscape uh, right around their home, right around their favorite tracking spots from that bird's eye view. Uh, to look at that on Google Maps is an easy thing to do nowadays. And, you know, to really study the flow of the land, where do the trails go? Where do the human trails go first? Because humans, of course, are a huge impact on wildlife and how they behave. So sometimes you get larger animals, like in California, mountain lions love to use old forest trails and human pathways because they're easy to navigate. Um, and they'll use them for big stretches of time and then duck off uh, onto game trails and other things. So certainly wildlife are using human trails. So I like to start with that, just studying, okay, where are the human trails going? How do they interact with waterways, like creeks and streams? Um, and then where are the ridges? Because a lot of animals travel along ridges as well or across saddles between ridges. Well, so looking at the topo maps, looking at the satellite maps, and you're just getting the lay of the land and imagining if you're an animal, how would you get from point A to point B? How would you get from your bed to your food? And it becomes uh, kind of a strategy game at that point of making predictions and getting out on the land and seeing what you see, uh, whether your predictions were right or not. Yeah, nice. And and the um, you know you mentioned there sort of I, I can't remember the exact words that you used, but but what came up into my mind uh, in my head was uh, putting on the mind of the animal, so to speak, uh, kind of a, 
uh, imagine what it would be like to be a deer or to be a mouse uh, or a bull. Uh, and you, what are the things that you're looking for? Safety, shelter, food, um, you know, uh, reproductive partners. Uh, what are the things that you're afraid of, the, the sorts of predators? And, and how would that drive your behavior? And, and really, you know, the human capacity for imagination is uh, pretty remarkable, it seems, and, and powerful. And it seems like that's feeding in a lot to what you're, what you're suggesting here. Absolutely. I mean, we are storytelling machines. We are meaning makers as human beings. Um, and there's a great book by uh, the tracker uh, Louis Liebenberg. Uh, it's called the, uh, I believe it's called the science and art of tracking, or I'll have to look up the title on yeah. that. Yeah, I think it's the uh, art of tracking the origins of science. There we go. Yeah, that's it. Wonderful book. Um, and he really posits in there and gives a good case for how tracking really is the origin of that capacity in us as humans uh, to make that meaning and uh, to, to weld together sort of those uh, art aspects, right. Of how do we uh, perceive the world from an artistic view, you could say of uh, movement and patterns and stories and, then bring that in with the logical thinking, uh, both inductive and deductive reasoning uh, to study an animal trail and learn from it and also be able to predict creatively with our imagination who left these tracks and where is it going and why um, to step into that scenario, just like we would when we read a novel today and we're reading the words on the page and it's coming to life in our mind. Uh, that capacity can be tracked back literally to footprints and, uh, the ability to look into a track and uh, see it as a symbol that it connects in our mind to whoever left that track and then to uh, put ourselves into that scenario. So I see that as a very creative art and one of the cool things about it, you could say a side effect of tracking, but maybe it's a primary effect when we do this is that that capacity to do this uh, spills over into other areas of our life. So it is just like learning to read a book. You read the tracks and there's all this information you start to glean from it. Um, and the world comes alive in a different way as we step onto that trail. Uh, and it's a little different for each animal because they each have their own way of navigating the world, their own way of surviving uh, and different foods they eat, different ways they move, um, different things they worry about for their survival concerns. So each animal becomes a, a teacher that guides us into a much larger perspective of life. And I, I hear you mentioning here some questions that you're, you're kind of asking yourself, like who is doing what and um, what are the kind of the, the questions that you like to keep in mind as you're, as you're tracking and, and helping others develop their own tracking uh, abilities? Well, you know, on one level of the journey, like you said, there's who questions, who left this track, who are the animals that live here? And that's always a first step I invite people to do is uh, to get out a field guide or go online and do some research um, and find out what are the mammals that live in this place? Who are they? Make a list of them. Um, that's your first step because when you track, it's kind of like being a detective and you need to know who your suspects are. <laughs> you need to know who's in the lineup, uh, you know, that might have left that track. So you want to learn who is living in your area for your mammals. So as a starting place. And eventually you can expand that to birds, 
um, to other things that leave tracks on the ground, if that's what you're doing, to the reptiles and amphibians and insects, you can get really into who left that track on the ground. Um, so that's a good starting place. But over time, you know, with experience, you start to get into those other questions. How did the animal move when it came through here? What did it do when it left those tracks? When we start to interpret the trail and we might ask, you know, was it galloping? Was it trotting? Did it have its head turned? Did it stop suddenly? Uh, we're on that level. And of course we want to know when did the animal pass through? And that gets us thinking about the weather. When did it rain? When did those raindrops fall on the tracks? Those kinds of questions. Uh, why is it here? What's the ecology that's drawing this animal into this spot at this time? What's the food? Uh, what's the cover? What are they doing in their behavioral cycle this time of year? Uh, these things are all going to give us clues to that what question as well. When we understand why they're doing something, we start to see what behaviors emerge in the process. Um, we might also look at where are they going? You know, where is this animal headed right now, this time of day, in this season? Um, we might pay attention to the birds as we track and listen for alarm cries because maybe the animal's off in the distance, just out of sight, but the birds are, are catching its movement. Uh, we might pay attention to ourselves as we track. How do we feel? How attuned are we in the moment? Um, are we really attuned to this trail? Or are we getting lost in thoughts about something else? Or how does this trail make us feel? You know, when we follow this particular set of tracks, does it have a baseline feeling to it? Does the animal seem like it's doing its usual thing and it feels like a comfortable rhythm and then all of a sudden the animal breaks out into a gallop and we get a different feeling in our body? something happened here? What is that telling us? Um, so there's quite a, a number of questions, but that that's a, a kind of big picture view of some of the things that uh, we might inquire into as we track. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you, you know, share those in the ways that like some of the things that people probably don't really, you, know, you just start with a well, the basic question that uh, most people are inclined to ask, it's just the, like, what left that track? Who was that? And then, and then more detailed, maybe you imagine you could say, well, that was a, a particular, it was a male or a female or how old it was, or maybe if you get really good, an individual, but all those other aspects uh, create such a, a, a richer sense of, of what's going on and of, of getting to know, uh, you know, I like to think of it as getting to know the neighbors, so to speak. Um, and, and for me, that process here where I live in Sitka has, has been ongoing. I haven't really tried to uh, focus on any particular animal myself that hasn't been compelling to me, but, but rather a, a broader sort of um, like uh, looking, at, looking at the whole and, and how things interrelate and, and learning to uh, recognize and identify many different things. Um, and then kind of having that all coalesce over time. But I, I remember it, it's, it's fun when there are puzzles, I guess maybe we'll, we'll call it nature puzzles where there's something and you're just like, hmm, I wonder what that is. And uh, one example for me that, that is relatively early on in my experience of, of uh, being an aspiring naturalist. I remember walking along a trail here and, and a lot of the trails here have boardwalk on them because the ground is organic and it's very wet. So uh, it, uh, the soil turns to mud very easily if it's impacted very much. And so we have boardwalks and there was this white dots on the boardwalk. It almost looked like paint. You know, you could imagine that it was spray from a bird, bird droppings or something, but that would wash away. And this was always there. And I, I just couldn't figure out what it was. And, uh, you know, I was on a trail that I went on 
pretty regularly. And at one point I looked up and I realized that it was actually, it was sap that had dripped down onto the board. Uh, and it was sap from a tree that, that at the time I finally realized this, the tree was dead. Uh, but it was sap from sapsucker wells uh, that had been drilled in the, in the bark of this tree by a sapsucker. I'd never seen a sapsucker in the tree when I'd been there, but obviously they'd been there many times over, over many years. So that was one that it, it, was, it took a while for me to, to realize. And in hindsight, it was pretty obvious. Like, why didn't I just look up to see where the, <laughs> see where the drips were coming from? Um, but it, it was, I'd been so focused on down uh, that I didn't think about uh, looking around and, and looking at the broader context. And then that, that rose up all these other questions like, well, how old are these wells? How much time does it take once, when they're very fresh, you can see the under part of the bark where the wood is fresh and it hasn't started to dry out and it hasn't started to um, uh, heal over yet. And the birds will keep that open for a while, <clears throat> but eventually they'll abandon that well, presumably as the tree starts to close it off a little bit. So there's these questions of timing. And then why are the birds choosing this tree instead of another one? Like some trees are very popular and other ones aren't. And I don't have questions for all of these or answers for all of these questions yet, but, uh, but there are questions that start to arise as I consider the bigger picture of these, of these sapsuckers here. And the tracks weren't really, you know, started with the splashes of sap on the ground. It wasn't really a track per se, but, but all these, what we might more generally call sign uh, of that these, these birds are leaving uh, and the trees, and, and it's actually the interaction of the birds and the trees. And so uh, I was just reminded a little bit of that, that experience as you were going through those, those different questions that you, that you carry when you're, when you're uh, tracking. I mean, that's the fun thing about tracking too, as those questions come up, you know, they expand us, they get us thinking and sensing beyond what we were thinking before, you know, they open us to new possibilities. And sometimes we find the answers, you know, sometimes we, we look up and we get the context, right. And we find out a little bit more about the cause, but sometimes they remain mysterious. You know, the answer does not seem immediately present to us. And to me, sometimes those are some of the funnest tracks are the ones that I really can't solve in the moment. Um, because then I start to wonder, you know, and this curiosity builds and I start to picture these different scenarios. What could have done that? You know, what about this? What about this? Um, or maybe it's just so mysterious. I don't even have an idea. Um, but this gets me looking, this gets me asking more questions and exploring further researching in the field guides, um, asking other people if they've seen these kinds of things. And sometimes the question like that can percolate for a long time and then you even forget about it. And then one day out of the blue, you know, you tap into the right conversation or you actually see the animal make the track. Those are the, the best, the very best ones, I think, <laughs> when you actually see the animal do that very behavior. Um, but I love it because these questions linger and they, uh, they, they stew in the back of the mind and get us observing that much more deeply. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed in your sharing here, uh, both, I think you've said it explicitly, but also just kind of implicitly and in, in what I'm getting the sense of is this sense of expansion uh, that, that it's um, expanding awareness, but it feels like it's maybe even a little more, more than that. It's not just awareness. that's kind of getting expanded our, our sense of selves, maybe, or sense of relatedness. Um, could you speak a little bit to, to that? Yeah. Um, as we connect this way through these questions, through these sensory experiences, uh, certainly our conception of the world, I see it as expanding. Um, we 
start to ask questions we've never asked before. We, we are literally making new connections in our brain by doing that. Um, we literally carry the nature we connect with with us in our brains through our neural structure that forms through this inquiry. Um, as we are observing and asking questions, what we're doing is we're actually causing our dendrites to start to reach out in our brain and look for answers, right? So if we don't know the answer, it literally primes our senses to pay attention and gather new information from our surroundings. And then as that comes in, it starts to match it up with what we know, with our map of the world. And if it fits in there well, it starts to move into that map. So we're literally assimilating the environmental information that's coming in through our senses. We're building a simulation of that in our brain that helps us make sense of the world. And as we solidify that through experience and through repeated sensory contact, that, that literally gets embedded into our neural architecture. We're bringing that with us. Um, a great example of this is in our hippocampus, which is in the brain and it's involved with spatial navigation and with memory. And there are specialized cells, they're called place cells. And what they do is they actually help us make a map of those places that we know well, that we move our bodies through uh, repeatedly. So if we have a favorite tracking area or a trail we hike every day or often enough, what starts to happen is our body and our senses map out the feeling of that trail, the rise and fall, the little dips here and there, that one stone you always have to watch out for that you stub your toe on. We literally build a spatial map of that that we carry with us in our brain. So as we inquire, as we explore the landscapes, as we immerse ourselves in the patterns of nature, we're starting to take all that in and bring that with us uh, everywhere we go as a reference we can return to. Yeah, nice. That brings up for me something that I don't think you've, you've probably researched much in your, uh, what, you, what you were looking at. It's a little uh, related, but, but separate, I think, which is the spatially based memory techniques, uh, the memory palace. Functionally, it's, that, that's probably using similar uh, brain architecture as a song line might be, for example, but, but really kind of putting memories and associating them with place. And that's a really powerful way to remember all immense amount of material uh, very well. And it's been, it's kind of fascinating to me and something I'm looking forward to experimenting more with is, is to that, that interaction of, of, you know, as you were describing, they're really getting to know that place and have, having it be um, uh, there in our, in our minds uh, is a simulation in a sense, but to also, bring attention by, by consciously putting memories in those places. And so I've, I've noticed just in the very, you know, early experiments that I've done with myself that, that if I go to a place or, or if I, if I revisit a place in my mind that I've been and putting memories in those places that, that reinforces my awareness of those places and the details of those places, because the details can be used to put even more memories in. And so there's a reinforcing that happens there. And, and I'm really fascinated by this kind of interaction of our, of our sort of mental map and, and the, the outer world that, that it's, it's uh, mapping onto or mapping with. And, and the ways that, that, you know, if we have a, a poor mental map in some ways, you know, we can, <laughs> uh, we need to have that be trained, uh, that, that feedback from the natural world 
helps to refine our understanding of, of it. And it's an ongoing uh, process of, of feedback loops, it, it seems like, in practice. Yeah, this was actually a branch of research I got into, and there was so much material I actually didn't have room to put in the book when all was said and done. Um, so I kind of have a whole other book worth of stuff um, that I need to deal with at some point here. Uh, and one of the fascinating theories I found out there is called the theory of the extended mind. And it has to do with what you're talking about there of mapping our memory with the landscape. Um, and uh, it's this idea that, you know, today we rely so much on uh, external aids like Google, for instance. There's been tons of studies done now about how Google is interacting with memory and sense of self. Um, and if you take people away from their computer for a certain period of time, uh, they're finding now through uh, feedback surveys that it's actually impacting people's sense of self to be separated from their technology that they depend on. Because when you think about it, you can turn to Google, ask anything, and within a few seconds, get an answer back, right? So people are starting to depend on that uh, quick ability and it's like Google or whatever search platform you want to use, it's becoming an extension of oneself uh, because the information comes back so rapidly. So when you separate from that, uh, if you're highly dependent on that, uh, there can be actually a consequence of that, which is very interesting, uh, technologically speaking. Um, but the researchers went on and they looked back, and, and this was something I was kind of doing, was comparing how does this play out with different levels of technology because you have Google or a search platform on one hand, but you know, a notepad in your hand is also a form of technology. And certainly I still do this. I have one right here in front of me, you know, I'll write down thoughts that come to me throughout the day for projects I'm working on or to do lists. And in a way that notepad in my hand becomes an extension of my mind. Um, it's carrying information that instead of storing it in my brain, I'm storing it and referencing it in the notepad. Um, but we could take that even a step further back, like you're saying, onto the landscape, um, onto the spatial characteristics, onto the patterns of the land that help us uh, when an event happens in that place. Um, it becomes memorable, and we connect the two, or we form that intentionally, like you're talking about, um, mapping something we want to remember onto that place. Um, so we could say the land, when we do that, starts to come alive in a whole other way. Uh, we discover the story of the landscape. Um, and it, I find that that's an endlessly fascinating subject to me. Yeah, there's been some books uh, written, and, and I find fascinating as well. It's the, the uh, and I trying to, I can't remember uh, the name of, of one of the books, but it was, it was really about um, naming as, as uh, naming places as part of a relationship uh, to the land. And it's not, you know, we think of names, names are important for um, shared reference points, you know, and I've, I've talked to somebody that's like, well, we don't have to name everything. And I, and I think that's, that's true to an extent, like we don't have to have official names for everything, but I think there's a real power in having uh, personal or community names, if you will, for, for many places, even down to really fine gradations. And so I think in, in English, we don't really, uh, we, we don't have a, a kind of a natural way of doing that. Perhaps I think some other languages do this more readily, but in English, you, you know, certainly we could refer to that place where we saw that mountain lion track or whatever, you know, and then there's a story, a shared reference point, or, or if it's not a shared, it's a shared reference point either because we were all there 
or because we all know the story of, of that place, you know, and that particular thing that happened there. And so you can get really fine, but that, the way in which that story interacts with our relationship with the place, those stories, and they're very personal or, or community-based, you know, they don't have to be universal. Uh, but the way in which that also then shapes the, begins to shape our experience of, of place and the, you know, I was just talking with my kids the other day about this. There's a <clears throat> park that they will walk through fairly often and, you know, would be pretty familiar with. And I said, and, and they, at times they've wandered around off the trails and, and I said, you know, you, you feel like, and I know this from my own experience, you feel like you know that place. Like you feel like you've seen everything there. You feel like, you know, you've walked along the trail, you've seen it, and your mind just kind of fills in the gap of those places that, and, and just sort of feels like it knows what's there. But if you were to get off the trail and really poke around, there's little nooks and crannies and hollows and, and just places that, that you realize if you start to do that, that, oh, wow, I didn't know this was here. But you don't experience that sense of, of you know, gap in the map, so to speak. Our brains are really effective at, at helping us feel like we know. <laughs> so it's a kind of a funny thing in a way that the, you know, being able to name it at ever finer granularity helps us, for me at least, it, it seems to help um, inspire and or remind that, that oh, wait, I don't, have a, I don't have a name. I don't have a way of thinking about that, that space. I probably actually don't know it that well. It's a place that I have assumed that I've known, but there's a, there's a blind spot there really that my brain's just filling in the gaps. Like, I guess, literally speaking, our blind spot is, is our brain fills in the gap. It's not seeing anything there, but, but it, it just makes continuous what, what's around it and assumes that that's good enough. And usually it is, but that can be, um, there can be issues. And so, yeah, it is, this is a fascinating topic. And, and uh, I imagine there's at least some work done on that and probably much more to go. Yeah, you know, I've seen some research suggesting that 80% of what we see is actually our brain's prediction based on what it already knows. And so you have signals coming in through the optic nerve, um, and they're being met, you could say, by the existing map of the world that we hold. And if the information looks like it matches up with that, um, there's actually projection going on that matches up with that. And the 20% that filters through if it's different enough, it gets us to pay attention enough to bring in more information. So this is why I often suggest to people look and then look again, <laughs> because like you said, there's these blind spots. And if our map of the world hasn't placed importance on certain information, like for instance, like growing up in the suburbs, uh, for most people, knowing what a deer track looks like isn't that important unless that deer starts to eat somebody's roses. <laughs> And then suddenly now, okay, they're like, huh, what did that? And they look down and they see the heart-shaped, you know, tracks in the soil. They may not know which direction that deer was going yet by the tracks because they haven't tuned in that much. But it's starting to filter through that, oh, these are deer tracks. That's what ate my roses. And maybe those deer tracks were there on the lawn for the last 20 years, but that person never really had a reason to look. So when their eyes were scanning the lawn or scanning the dirt at the edge of the lawn, um, you know, the tracks were there, but they weren't coming in to the conscious awareness. They were being filtered by that predictive pattern of there's the lawn, there's the dirt, there's nothing else there, you know, that I need to pay attention to. Um, so tracking is a way to invite us to look more deeply, to sense more deeply, to meet those blind spots and just be open to let that information percolate in that we might skip otherwise. 
Yeah, it's funny how that that works sometimes, and then and then you get the. I have to keep reminding myself, and I'll say, um, well, I, I try I try to remind myself by saying, I guess I should say that when I notice something uh, for the first time, like an example for me was Northern Flickers, which I uh, learned about when I was in graduate school, and I would see them on the lawn, you know, going after ants and stuff, and they're like. A, they're a large bird and, and colorful, pretty showy. And so uh, I was like, oh, wow, these are nice birds. They, they make loud calls that are pretty distinctive. So I got to know them there. And then I, I was, when I moved back to Sitka full time, I remember the first fall, I think, probably it was the first fall. And I heard one. I was like, oh, wow, Northern Flicker. They must have moved in while I was gone because uh, I'd never had any awareness of them growing up. And... <clears throat> And I, I could have easily persisted in thinking that, that uh, the Northern Flickers hadn't been here uh, when I was growing up, but they had, they had moved in in the intervening years, except for that I met a couple of ladies, uh, Marge Ford and Marlis Tadine, who had been keeping bird records going back into 19, around 1980 or 81, which was, you know, at that time I was five or six. So most of my growing up years. <laughs> uh, and there were Northern Flickers around the entire time. And they had observed, you know, they aren't abundant here, but they were certainly around. And it just was not in my awareness at all. Like I, if, if you'd asked me, I had never heard one before uh, here in Sitka. I had never seen one before and, um, and they must have moved in. So whenever I have something that shows up that I haven't been aware of before, I have to remind myself, well, maybe it's new or <laughs> maybe I just hadn't been paying attention in the right way. And that uh, these things were here all along, but for whatever reason, they just weren't, yeah, weren't filtering through as you described. And so I, I wasn't aware of them. And so it's, it's interesting to watch that play out in other people as well, you know, and they're like, oh, wow, these things, they, they weren't, they were never here before like this. I'm like, well, maybe in some cases I know differently because I've seen them before. And in other cases, it's just like, it's that question, you know, is it, is it truly something new or is it something that we weren't really attending to before? Um, and it's, it's sometimes difficult to know, uh, for sure, but, uh, but it is an interesting question and an interesting aspect of our, of our psychology that, that these questions can really help. And I, I noticed that in my children, especially, uh, and myself when I was, when they were younger and we would just be going for walks and I was trying to work on my own sense of paying attention to the sounds and the smells and, and things like that. Um, I remember saying, oh, did you hear that? Uh, and for a while, you know, my kids would be like, what? And then, and then at a certain point they were, yeah, I heard that over there. And, and then, and then at one point from time to time it would happen. And it's, and, and especially my daughter, for some reason, I think her hearing is sharper than, uh, than mine or, or my son's. She would say, which thing are you talking about? And I'd only heard one thing. And so, <laughs> so then I was, then I was got like, oh, I guess I'm not catching everything now. It was in this interesting process, but it was just simply asking that question kind of casually as we were out walking around uh, repeatedly that, that invited that awareness to come out in ways that, you know, for me at that age, it didn't. I didn't, I wasn't aware of a lot of things. Um, wasn't, as, as you said, there wasn't a meaning to associated uh, with it culturally or, or in, within my family or personally that, that drew my attention to those things. And so they just, they didn't exist in, in some way for me, obviously they were there in the world, but, but in my awareness, uh, you know, they, they were completely absent. Yeah. That's, um, one of the reasons why in the beginning of my book, uh, one of the first chapters I give an exercise that I call sponge awareness and 
even though it's really simple, it's one of the most profound practices, I think, for tracking and nature awareness. And the basic idea of it is just to plunk yourself down somewhere outside, or you could even do this inside, you know, wherever you happen to be. And to just allow your senses, starting with sight perhaps, but you could do this with any sense. Um, if you start looking close by to you on the ground uh, and work your way further away and just ask the question over and over, what is here? What am I noticing? And just to look and then look again and then look again and just let your eyes rove where they want to go. Not trying to force anything into your awareness, but just asking that question, what's here right now? And I find that when I do this, at first I'll see a certain amount or I'll hear a certain amount. Um, but as I go deeper and I keep inviting that question, it slowly opens my sense of that place. And now little things or maybe even big things that I didn't just pay attention to before pop into my awareness in a different way. And interrelationships that I didn't notice pop into my mind. Um, and it's just attending. Uh, it's that most basic of mindfulness questions, you know, what's happening in this moment. Um, and we can apply that on the landscape uh, to great effect to help us tune into that place and notice more than we ever have. We can also apply that inside ourselves. What's happening in my mind right now? What thoughts are coming through? What memories or ideas? And just watching that. Or we could say what emotions, you know, are coming through? What am I feeling right right now? You could also ask, what am I sensing? What kind of sensations, apart from feelings, on that emotional tone, what about just the raw physical sensations that I'm feeling? My hot, my cold? Do I feel pressure against my skin? Uh, what's the sensation of my hand in the grass or in the soil? Or the skin on the back of my neck? Does it feel like the air is moist or dry there? As I breathe the air in, uh, you know, what's the quality of the air that I'm taking in? What's the scent? Uh, so these are just some of the basic questions that can help us arrive into the moment. And I find that that's the, really the first step to tracking is attending to the moment and being open to what's actually there rather than what we think is there. Yeah, I like that. And I, I find that, you know, just reflecting on even my own approach uh, over the years that there are certainly places that I revisit that I end up being surprised to find something. And sometimes that's because that something wasn't there before, but often it's because that something was, went unnoticed by me before for whatever reason. And the, and, and how many times that I, I don't, I just walk through that place as though I know it already and, and kind of take it for granted and, and let it all be essentially, I guess I'm living in my mental map without inviting the feedback of, of the, of the real world. At some point I follow the trail and I, I know what I'm supposed to be seeing. And so that's all that I know that's there. Uh, and so the, the difference in perspective, and I guess that's really what you're getting at with mindfulness is the mindfulness is, is inviting each time there to be different. Yes. It's a familiar place, but, but what is it this time? How is it in this moment? And it's not just about how that place has changed, but also how we've changed perhaps and our relationship with that uh, place, the, the kind of what emerge, our experience emerges is, emerges out of both the place and our own internal uh, experience and, and the interaction of those then. Absolutely. And that shift internally that you're talking about, I find that 
it doesn't just help affect, mm, let's see, what we're taking in from the landscape, right? Like you changed between growing up and learning about flickers, <laughs> right? Like something in you changed that opened up the possibility that they might be there and how to identify them. And then that changed your relationship with that place and that you could then take in that information more effectively and real, you know, have that relationship with those flickers on your local landscape. So it changed your relationship on the incoming sensory information. But I also find that opening up that way and that inner transformation changes what we put out to the landscape as well, how we carry ourselves in that place. Um, like you just said, like if it's a, I find this sometimes if I catch myself, this is a place that I know well, like why should I pay attention here? I really want to get to this other place. Then my body language might be that I'm cruising through this first place just to get through there. I'm not paying as much attention because of that. Um, maybe I'm scaring the squirrels, maybe um, causing that robin or that flicker to fly off the ground and alarm. And because of that, the place I want to get to, those animals that are way over there, well, they hear these robins. They hear these squirrels and these flickers alarming. So by the time I get over there, they're already on alert um, because they know something's up. So, you know, that idea of our intention, that idea of what are we open to in the moment, how attentive are we, how present are we, uh, this I find influences how we affect that place, how we affect the animals, what ripples out from us as we move through. Yeah, that speaks to, I know you have a, an interest in, and have spent a lot of time working with uh, bird language and that's the um, just paying attention to uh, how the birds in part, how the birds are acting, but also how they're responding to our own actions. And I suppose it could be uh, other animals as well, but the birds seem to be particularly good uh to attend to when, when considering, you know, the impact that we're having just in our, in our way of being in that moment, uh, the, the sort of uh, stomping forward, you know, uh, approach versus a, a, a more aware approach that they're paying attention to how we're showing up um, and, and responding to that offering feedback that, that uh, we don't necessarily, we might take it personally if it came from another human, but from the birds, uh, it's easier to not take it quite so personally, perhaps. And um, that there's there's benefits to just uh, tending to our awareness around uh, are the birds seeming comfortable with us today, or, or are they not? And and then taking that on board and saying, okay, what is that? How is that reflected in my internal state? Like, what is it that's that might be uh, resulting in that, or vice versa? you know, getting a sense of the anxiety a bird might be feeling that that isn't from you, but, but because there's a predator around, maybe the neighbor's cat or something like that. And it's a fun journey to attenuate the senses to, to comprehend what that is that you're talking about. And there's stages to it um, in calibrating the senses that way with the birds. And really it's about relationship. I mean, all of tracking comes back to our relationship, whether it's the relationship with, deer tracks and, and, you know, their shape and what they're telling us, how they age in the soil, where the deers go. Um, but it's also about, uh, you know, our relationship with that, with that bird, with that Robin, um, over and over getting to understand that Robin, what is that Robin paying attention to, you know, who eats that Robin <laughs> on the ground, whether it's a cat, you know, or a weasel, um, or in the air, you know, a cooper sock or some other bird of prey. Um, 
what does that Robin have to worry about in its life? And what is its strategy uh, reflecting about that? Right. Um, I can remember when I started to learn bird language and I was tuning into Robins that I felt like I was always scaring them no matter how quietly and softly and slowly I moved. But uh, at some point I realized that, you know, actually, no, (laughs) I'm not scaring that Robin that's 200 yards away up in the top of the tree. Um, Actually, that's the Cooper's hawk that I can't see. (laughs) that's out of sight right now. But you know, that's a common thing. I, I see that in a lot of people I mentor at first, they, they go through this phase where they start to attenuate their senses and open them to the Robin and what it's doing. And they personalize all of it. Yeah. Cause they don't know about the Cooper soccer. They don't know about um, the other predators that's unseen in the distance. Um, of course that Robin is not worried about you 200 yards away. You know, it's up in the top of a tree, 50 feet up it. it you're the last thing on its uh, concern list right now. Um, versus the robin that's 10 feet away on the ground, that one's going to be uh, cued into you at a much deeper level. Um, so this is a process of discernment that just like we learn to read over time and spell out different words and how they fit together in sentences and get their meaning, we start to uh, attune mindfully to, the, to each bird and uh, what its behavior indicates and how we relate to that. So uh, to me, that's a really fun process because it never really ends and it always opens us up to another mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. And the, um, I know, I know we're getting close to the end here and just wanted to give you a chance, uh, to speak to, you know, if, if folks are interested, uh, in sort of taking advantage of the benefits or of, of mindfulness, I know that in your, in your book, Conscious Nature, which if folks are interested, they can learn more about that at ConsciousNature.net. And I'll put a link to, to your website here on, um, on my website when I post the recording of this show. But if folks are just interested in kind of expanding their, their experience in nature, uh, their sensory experience in nature, especially in, in developing a, a mindfulness practice with that, is there anything that you'd recommend for people to to kind of get started with that, maybe to expand upon. They're already, you know, we live in, uh, folks that are listening to this show largely are, are living in Southeast Alaska, the uh, radio broadcast area, uh, have lots of opportunities to be outside and, and many people are outside regularly, both for subsistence activities, uh, harvesting, gardening, and just recreational activities as well, but bringing maybe a greater sense of awareness and uh, and presence and mindfulness uh, and the benefits that, that come out of that. Uh, what are some things that you might recommend that folks could perhaps add into the things that they're already doing outside? Mm, yeah. Well, I definitely recommend picking up the book. Uh, there's 36 different practices you can try in there uh, that relate to ways to connect to the environment mindfully uh, through different senses. So it's, it's a great resource and it really highlights the uh, you know, the changes that happen internally as well, how this benefits us health wise and, and cognitively. So definitely recommend the book conscious nature (laughs) built for that purpose. Um, But, you know, just routines you can do um, right away to get started. Uh, One of them of course would be uh, just building a little mindful section into whatever you're doing outside already, because, we know that habits form most effectively when we graft them onto existing habits. So if we want to start a new routine, it's easier to build it into something we're already doing. Uh, For that purpose, I always recommend 
if you're going to walk the dog every day, or if you have a favorite hike that you do after work every day, um, take a small section of that, literally a two minute section of that place you go and set a start point and an end point and designate that as a time to just be mindful and to not be in conversation, but just let your senses immerse in your surroundings. Feel each footstep as you walk. Let your hearing expand into the distance um, and just savor that two minutes as a mindful experience of part of what you're already doing in a more intentional way. And maybe over time you expand it to five minutes and then 10 minutes. Um, I often like to say 10 to 12 minutes is a great amount of time to work towards for mindfulness practice because it can shift our physiology and we get the relaxation response and literally we reset our nervous system. So we shed stress and we deeply relax that way. So if you can work towards that 12 minute zone, that's kind of the sweet spot of just anytime you have a thought, you start thinking about something else, you just recognize it and then just come back to your senses again and just keep doing that for that 12 minutes and notice how do you feel before your walk? How do you feel after? Uh, And if you like to sit and you have a, a favorite place to sit outside by the garden or out in the woods or just watching the water, um, you know, sit there and do the same practice of just returning to your senses. Anytime you get distracted by thought, come back to the moment. What's here right now? What am I experiencing? Just being in your senses and notice how you feel after about 12 minutes of it It can be quite profound uh, of a shift. So that would be the number one thing I recommend. All right. Thank you, Josh. And yeah, it's appreciate your, your time here and, I know folks can reach you through your website, consciousnature.net, where you have uh, information about the book as well as some other, other things that folks might be interested in if they want to learn more about what you're doing, some featured articles and uh, other, other radio shows or, or podcasts that you've been a part of if folks want to hear more from you. So I'll be sure to share that, but it's consciousnature.net. Is there anything else you'd like to leave folks with here as we close? Yeah, I just invite you to explore the question in the week ahead or so here. What is nature offering you in this season? What's unique about this time of year, this season, that you can only experience perhaps right now? Uh, And I'll just leave that as a question for your uh, sensory experiences over the next weeks. And thanks, uh, Matt, for the chance to be here. And, yeah, I wish that uh, all your journeys in nature may nourish you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded and originally aired back in late March of 2020. I was speaking with Josh Lane, a naturalist and tracker, also author of the book Conscious Nature, The Art and Neuroscience of Meditation in Nature. I want to thank him for joining me to speak uh, at that time and also thank you for joining me here this week on the Sitka Nature Show. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.